open to, we'll read verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars." and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So here as we've um, come into the book of Revelation, a reminder here, Revelation means revealing. Apocalypse is a Greek word. It means revealing or the unveiling. Let's go to the next slide here. Um, last week, or pardon me, two weeks ago, we looked at, well, three weeks ago, we had our first message introducing the book. Then the rest of chapter one was John's vision of Christ. An incredible vision of Jesus glorified. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His, his feet were like brass burning, and his face is the sun that shines. And an amazing vision, and John was just awestruck and fell down as dead when he saw Jesus. And the Lord said, Don't fear. Um, what, I want you to write the things you've seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be. And, and then he defined some of the symbolic things that John saw. But now, we can go to the next one. We're going to look tonight at, <clears throat> this would be modern day Turkey or Asia Minor. Um, we're going to look tonight at, we're going to begin the section of the seven churches of Revelation. If this was proportionate, this map continued over again, where I'm standing would be about where Israel is and then the Middle East, and then south of all of this picture would be Africa, west of this picture would be the Greece immediately, and then Italy and the edge of the Mediterranean. So here's the region that pertains to the next seven churches, the next two chapters, chapters 2 and 3. The region is modern-day Turkey. In the Bible, it's called Asia. When they referred to it, they meant this area. Um, this wasn't the only churches here. There were other churches there. There were other churches in the whole, around the Mediterranean. Anywhere in the Roman Empire, pretty much, there was a church by the first hundred years. But we're going to begin looking at this. Um, over here would be Patmos. Actually, it's down there. It's about, it's a little bit southwest of Ephesus. I think about 40 miles in the ocean there is where John is on a basically a prison, prisoner island. And he's receiving this vision, he's writing these things. And, and, um, but these churches here, they're, this is the region. And, and in fact, if you start at Ephesus and go clockwise, that's how Jesus addresses the churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. He goes in that clockwise 
Earth's orbit. <laughs> and these are strategically located. All these churches were not, it wasn't like, um, and there's nothing wrong with this. It wasn't like it was a far out church where, you know, a Nome, Alaska type of thing. They were all strategically located near a major Roman road. They, no original, as far as I know, no original building. The building's not the issue. But no original, what you might say, semblance of that congregation exists. There might be. Maybe I'll find something that I dig up in my studies. But really, that doesn't matter after 2,000 years. These are like trees that when they get cut down, they give their seed and they multiply and they still continue to exist. I mean, in a sense, we are the result of one church or another, whether it was the ones in Asia or Rome or Greece or Israel, we're the result of the original churches. But they don't, so we don't need to take it to where you become idolatrous, like let's find the church of Ephesus and in a building and it's, they're, they're not there, but they are the church, the institution itself has continued local churches. Chapters, chapter 2 and 3, these, it reveals these seven open letters. They're open for all of us to read. There's seven types. They're characteristics. There's certain types of them. It's not just that it's random. I think the Lord picked out certain... I want to... You know, you can say personality types, but you really some of these personalities you don't want to keep. But they are characteristics. There's seven types of churches, that is, they're in a certain type of condition. Uh, Ephesus will see it as a church of uh, departed love, the loveless church. Um, Smyrna was the, the, the persecuted church, at least at the time. Um, Pergamus was the worldly church. Thyatira was the sin-tolerant church. Sardis was the dead church. It had a name, it had a building, it had a reputation, but when you went there, you're like, this place is dead. Philadelphia is one of the favorite churches. The Church of the Open Door had a great opportunity. They were faithful too. And then the lukewarm church is Laodicea. And we'll get to each of those, Lord willing. But these, even though we're reading chapters 2 and 3, and we're reading about churches that existed 2,000 years ago, it's timeless. We're a local church also. We're in the other side of the hemisphere on another continent in another day and age. But there's certain things that are still common that we will face, and perhaps we're one of these churches. And if we are, we want to take Jesus' assignment that He gives to each church and adjust and change and repent. So Ephesus, if you caught this, key verses would be 4 and 5 about leaving your first love and how to repent of that. There's many admirable qualities about Ephesus. Many admirable qualities. We'll get into that. But they left their first love. It's you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, I, I look at a pastor like this, I'm like, man, you could really have a good message on marriage right here. You know, I, we, it's a blessing. Deb and I have been married 25 years. And, and some of you all that are married can relate with this. You know, basically, what do you, the first thing you start out with, all we know is we love each other. You know, how many of us probably, many of us guys could probably go back and you'd be like, if I asked you, hey, how much, what you did you make much when you first? No, I didn't make much money. We didn't have much. We had a folding chair. We didn't have a couch. We had a folding table in our apartment. And we had, you know, it's like most of us, we can describe the minimal stuff that we had when we first married. But we had love, you know. That's good. It's good, of course. The, the romantic, the, the agape love, the phileo love, we had that. We could all say, you know. 
And that's what was most valuable. That's what brought you together is your, is your love. And then you, you know, you grow as a family, you have kids, and you take on, I got a car, I take on a mortgage, and I have a job change, and, and then I have uh, more kids, and then we're, we're in a church, and we get involved in a ministry, and then we, um, you know, you just start adding things that you get involved in, and, and they're good things, and, and you're busy with, and, and, um, and you're, you know, uh, respond, oh, now you got a project at home, another project at home, and you're, in fact, you know, uh, you're doing it. Just, just all kinds of things that are responsibilities and things that occupy both you and your spouse's mind. And then there comes times where you're like, wait a minute. I, I don't get to spend a lot of time with you. You're the reason we started this whole thing, you know? <laughs> you know the sign? All because of two people who fell in love. You've seen those signs? Right? This is the whole reason we started this thing is because I like Deb and Deb likes me and it grew to love, and I got her dad's permission and got a couple of bucks and a, a vehicle and a, a lease at an apartment here up the road, and, and, uh, and I thought, this is who I want to marry. But, you know, after a while in your life, you can just be like, you know, my love is just kind of... The love part. And that's, we can probably relate with that in marriage. And if that's how you feel, then you need to pursue reviving your love toward your spouse. You do need to pursue that. And there's ways to do that. But that's also relatable with what the Lord feels toward his church, the, the church of Ephesus. So let's look at here. We got to, uh, don't, uh, uh, you can go to the, oh, thanks, bud. The way just about every church, the way I've studied this church, just about every church has these five points. The address of the church. Then you have the attribute that Jesus announces about himself. And then you have an assessment of the church. Here's the Lord says, I, this is this, this is how you are. And most of them you have an, after an assessment, an assignment to the church. And then after the assignment, you have an announcement to all who will listen. That's basically the five-point outline that's on nearly every church, all seven churches, nearly every one. It goes by that. So first of all, let's consider the address of this church. The address, look at verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. First, you consider the person of the address. It refers to the angel. It refers to that at every church, unto the angel of the church of Pergamos, unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, the angel of Smyrna. The angel, again, we, we referenced it last week, and I'll say it again this week. I honestly believe it's a reference to the leader of the church. Um, it is said that the leader of the synagogue, of a Jewish synagogue, was sometimes called the angel. It just meant whoever the spokesman was, whoever the messenger of a particular, the main messenger of a particular synagogue, they would sometimes call him the angelos in Greek, the angel. I think it's a reference to the leader, which is to me also a serious thing because like, whoa, he was first addressing the leader. The Lord was writing right to the leader and he'd read it and then he'd have to pass this down to the congregation, but he'd have to convict him first. So the address is the person, the first messenger is the, the angel or the, the pastor. The address also, the person, the address of the place. The place, Ephesus. Ephesus was a real place. Let's look at a couple things here. I don't know if this is... Can you get that going for me, bud? 
Oh, yeah, we got to plug that in. Ephesus, you can see right here, western edge, kind of southwestern edge of Asia Minor. It was a th about three miles up the coast. It was, it, um, it was a... I'll talk about that in a minute. It was a major city. Ephesus was. It was they called the gateway to Asia Minor, this whole area right here. Ephesus was the gateway to Asia Minor. It had a major harbor there. Any city that has a major harbor is, has some advantages. So you got goods coming and going, people coming and going. That's Ephesus. I read that it was probably about 250,000 people, which is pretty big back then. I think Gilbert's about that right now. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis, which they'd say in Greek, or some would call it the temple of Diana. It's the same thing. Artemis and Diana are the same. Um, in fact, that's what you read in your Bible in Acts 19 is Diana. They refer. This is a goddess. It's a false god. It doesn't exist, but it was a temple to a goddess, one of many goddesses. That's where what was happening. See, sometimes you gotta be you gotta be somewhat aware of what a city was like. What was there? What was the attraction? Um, by the way, they called it Great is Diana, Great is Artemis, because this temple was 220 years in building right here. It was it was of I read that it was mostly of shiny marble. And these pillars, the way they make these pillars is amazing. And again, you're not, they're not depending on computer technology. They're using their own algebra and physics and whatever else, geometry. They said, that you can see right here, it was a forest of columns. I wish I could print out. I don't, my phone's being used, but there's a description of the center part of this. It was like a bank. And it had some kind of idol there of Diana or whatever that they think fell out of the sky. Again, these are idol worshipers. Now, one of the things that stands out in Scripture, though, was this right here was an economic uh, magnet. You read Acts 19. When Paul went to Ephesus and preached the gospel, it was a threat to their economy. Because people people visit this place, and there was prostitution there, and there was their souvenirs. They had silversmiths that made something of Diana, whatever. You know, there was commerce going on, you know, linked with the, uh, with the temple here. And when Paul preached the gospel and Ephesians got saved and everything, they're like, we don't need this, these idols anymore. We don't need these books anymore. We're not going to visit that anymore. Well, that's affecting the money. And once it started affecting the money, then they got all upset. And by the way, that will happen in a society. If we see revival in our country, like spiritual revival, gospel revival, eventually there's going to be pushback because it'll affect bars and strip clubs and pornography and tobacco and casinos and all those high money-making things. There will be a consequence for revival if we have it in our country. Well, they made a big fuss when Paul preached there because of this temple. But that's Ephesus. Paul visited there. John was, uh, Paul probably, it seems Paul planted the church. The Apostle John, church history says that 
he was also a leader there, and Timothy was most likely a pastor. But So the address, the person, the place, and then the particular church itself. Ephesus was sort of a flagship church. Flagship church means it was kind of a central church that dispatched others, and it was influential. It, down in Jerusalem was a major church, the church in Jerusalem. North of Jerusalem in Antioch would have been another major church. Um, and then this would have been the major church, the most influential church. It appears to be the most influential church in Asia, this part of Asia. And then west of there, probably Corinth, and then in Rome would be an influential church. But here's our, the rest of our outline tonight, as I mentioned. And um, the attributes is next. The attribute of the Lord. He's talking. Unto the angel, look at verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? Who's writing? He tells who's writing. He tells one of many important descriptions of the one who's writing. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Jesus describes himself. He's writing to the church. I want you to know here's the... The person that's talking to you is the person that holds the seven stars in his right hand, the stars of the angels of the churches. He has a grip. He has control. He has sovereignty. He has leverage on those stars, on those leaders. He can put them in. He can take them out. These things, Ephesus saith, the one who holds these stars, and then what else? He walks among the seven golden candlesticks. Kids, how many of you have to clean your How many of you had to clean your room in the last 24 hours? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right. Kevin did too. All right. How many of you in the last 24 hours, mom or dad, had to inspect the room? Raise your hand. All right. Kevin, Margie didn't inspect it. <laughs> All right, so mom or dad inspects the room. Um, when we ever, whenever we've done a building project, when we did the expansion there, we had it inspected. When we did the steeple, we had to have a guy who was an inspector. When we did the 14, 15, or 16, or 17 years ago, when we did a, our initial remodel, we had an inspector several times. We had an inspector on the church sign. Whenever you're building something, you have to have an inspector. In fact, once a year, we have an inspector anyways, a fire inspector comes through, and they're usually pretty nice. Jesus, what's he saying? He goes, I'm the inspector. What is he saying? These things he saith, he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, I'm walking around here. I'm walking around checking these candles out. Yeah, I'm walking around. What's that one burning on? That one looks a little dim. That one's pretty smoky. That one's got some good fire going. He's walking in the midst, and he's examining the churches. He's, he's got um, um, his, his view, his opinion is being formed, if I could say opinion, of the churches. This is a thought. When I looked at that, I'm like, you know, he wants us to know that he's looking at the churches. Jesus sees our church. He sees you. He sees me. He sees us as a congregation. He knows what we're like, what we need, what we don't need, or 
we're doing well and what we're not doing well in? And the thought came to me as we see this attribute of Jesus walking among the seven golden candlesticks is this. It matters what Jesus thinks and his assessment. He's the best inspector. He's the inspector that we want to know. What do you have to say about us, Lord? I ask the Lord, Lord, what's your opinion of our church? Or is there something you want to change? Or something you want to add, subtract, adjust? What do you want? You're the, you walk among the golden candlesticks. In other words, we want to be, we want to, we want to care not so much what the world thinks about our church or what other Christians think about our church, but what does the Lord think about our church? There's been a movement in the last 20, 30 years, they call it the seeker-sensitive movement. And there's actually a few things about it that I think are reasonable. But for the most part, what it's tended toward is like, whatever the world likes, let's do that. Whatever the world wants, let's do that. We're McDonald's or Burger King, we'll have it your way. You know, isn't that what Burger King says? Have it your way. My way is free. They haven't given it to me like that yet, you know. <laughs> but, you know, there's kind of been that um, that mentality. And, and then I, I appreciated about 10 or 15 years ago, Pastor Chapel and Brother Getz wrote a book, a short little book called The Savior Sensitive Church. I was like, that right there speaks volume, just the title. The Savior, what is Jesus sensitive to in our church? So Jesus is inspecting the churches. That's his, the attribute. He, he, he gives himself here. Of it. By the way, this is some other modern-day you know, um, remnants of ancient. This is a picture today of remnants of ancient Ephesus. I don't even know what this is, but it, I'm told it's in Ephesus. So The attribute. Now the assessment. So Jesus gives his assessment. Here's what I've seen. Here's your report card. Look at verse um, 2, 3, and 4. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. So he gives an assessment. It's going to be a, in the assessment, we see a good thing and we see a bad thing. Several things about their good assessment. First of all, they're diligent. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. They're a diligent church. He, you know, he, he, when he speaks to Ephesus, he says, I know you're working. I know you're diligent and you're patient. You know what? Ephesus is the type of church that probably had a lot of ministries. I mean, if I could just translate them to kind of how we would be today, they would be the kind of church that, you know, they're doing something nearly every day of the week. Maybe they would have a bus ministry and a couple of soul winning times and, and uh, uh, ladies ministry and prayer ministries and, and uh, several classes. I mean, it would be kind of like that. Did they have that really back then? We don't know. Obviously, they didn't have a bus ministry unless they had large chariots and stuff, you know. But the idea is there was works. And he mentions it twice. I know that works. Oh, yeah, by the way, I know your works. And so they were a diligent church. They loved God's work. They were a discerning church. This is good. Look what it says. The Lord says, I know this. I know that also how thou, look at middle of verse 2, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. The Lord says, look, Ephesus, I know you're very busy, you love the work of God, and you've been patient, and you're diligent, and you are very discerning. These people that call themselves apostles, you really, you're really discerning them and sifting through them, and you're not believing all things. You're trying the spirits less, if they're of God, and you prove all things. And you've tested these false teachers and found out they're not really apostles. And you can't bear them which are evil. So they had a love for sound doctrine and practice. 
They were diligent. They were discerning. They were dutiful. Notice what it says in verse 3. Again, he mentions their labor. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. You know what they're the church there? They're the churches, we've been faithful. You know, they're probably about 40 years old. And they've been faithful. They've labored and they've borne and they've been patient. And they've had a good track record of all kinds of ministry things. Certainly, I would say church was planted and, and things done. Um, so they were faithful and diligent. But there's something wrong with the church. There's one major thing wrong. I have somewhat against thee, the Lord says. Lord, is it a program? Do we, should we do the times of our services differently? I got somewhat against thee. It's not that. Uh, Lord, is it the, the cleaning schedule? The nursery schedule. Is that what it is, Lord? Some of you are thinking, yeah, Pastor, there is a problem with the nursery schedule. I know. My wife's been talking to me about that. Anyways, uh, you have somewhat against us, Lord. What is it? Is it, the, is it the, the, the color of the paint? Is it the, you know, do we need to do another thing at the church? Our tracks, something wrong with our tracks. No, it's not, it's not what they had. Everything that they had was good. It's what they didn't have. Somewhat against thee because you have left. Thou hast left thy first love. So here, there was a good, now here's the bad. A love for Christ should be undergirding all things, and it wasn't undergirding. A genuine motive that I just love Jesus. I may not be doing the best things, or I may not be the most glorious person, but I'm going to do this the best I can because I love Jesus. The love for God is the best motive. We're called to do that. Matthew 22, 36. What does it say? The greatest of all commandments? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. That's the greatest thing you could do. Now, if I love Him, I will keep His commandments. But after a while, you can get to where you've gotten in the habit of keeping His commandments without loving Him. It says you've left your first love. You've, we, 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 uh, you, when I met you, we, I loved you first, and you loved me, and now all these other things have added up, and now you've left me, the first love. He says that to the whole church. It wasn't that like every single person in the church was like that, but the majority of it would have been like that, else it wouldn't have been described this way. What is God's first work on us, according to John 3.16? First, God so loved. God loved us, and then He gave. And the Bible says we love Him first, we love Him because He first loved us. The love of God is the beginning of all true Christian living and Christian ministry. So that was their assessment. They've left their first love. So he has an assignment, number four, an assignment. Look at what it says here. Verse five is the assignment. Threefold with a warning. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Here's their assignment. Remember, repent, and repeat your first works. You've left your first love. Well, how do, how do you revive love for a person? You know, um, my boys have been getting out photo albums of, of their, you know, we have, we have some photo albums of, in our living room, and they'll pull out 
Michael's baby book and Johanna's and some wedding albums and then some miscellaneous pictures. And they like to look at, <laughs> look at Gideon, <laughs> you know, that they and then look at Johanna, look at Susie, you know. Now, now we'll pull out theirs and be like, ah, ha, ha, look at Jimmy, you know. And then Johnny's just, Johnny keeps going, oh, cringe. That is so cringe, Dad, the hair. Ah. You know, he looks at pictures of me or of Dad. I'm like, Dad's beautiful. Mom's beautiful. She still is. Dad, would you grow puffy hair again if you could? I'm like, nah. You know. But he's like, oh, that's, uh, and then he'd see mom's friends or my friends. Oh, I can't believe that. Uh, uh. I'm like, John, listen. I said, listen, buddy, it's going to be worse for you. We See, you only have pictures of us. We have pictures of you and video that we'll be pulling out. <laughs> and you'll be like, Johnny, you remember this? I'm going to show your kids here, my grandkids. So he's a good sport about it, though, right? So, you know, it does help. Sometimes you pull out a photo album of somebody that is a friend or a sp- your own spouse. You just look at it. Like, oh, I remember when I got married. Oh, I remember our first year. Oh, you know, that's good to do. It's a good habit. I mean, if we were to just take some instruction here from the church even. Well, the Lord says that for him for the church, he and the church. He said, church, remember the state from which you've fallen. Remember, in other words, he's saying, remember the state by which you first loved me. Remember what it was like when you were first became a Christian and began to follow me. Remember what it was like? You, it was simple and you loved me. You knew I, I first loved you and you accepted that love and you loved me and you just, the simplicity of that early Christian life is, is precious. So he says, remember, and then he says, repent. Repent. Repent simply means change the mind, which results in a change of action. Do an about face. Turn back to me. Repent. He calls a good church, a sound church, a busy church, a working church, a church that was active and discerning and doctrinally sound and didn't have, no, you weren't going to find a false teacher in that church ever. But he tells him to repent. Because there was an issue of the heart. Of, Do you even love me? Do you love me? I know you love the ministries. I know you love doing your, um, your ministry. I know you love the church. I know you love doctrine. I know you love discerning false teachers from true teachers. I know you love that, but do you love me, he says. Repent and turn back to your love for me. So repent and then do the first words. That is return. Do the act. What does that mean? Do the activities that were formative early on in your Christian life. The early things. I mean, when you first became a Christian and you, and you first started, you know, coming to church or connecting with God, what would it involve? It involved simple things like, I pray, I talk to God, I I read the Bible, I come to church and fumble through these new hymns, but I'm trying my best. Um, And there's just a joyfulness because all as unto the Lord. Do the first works. One man said this about that. He says, we might say that Satan does a masterful job in creating a sense of general dissatisfaction with these first works. You know, we get too sophisticated for how we used to be as early Christians. 
Christians will often run, will run after almost every new strange method or program for growth and stability. Our shortened attention span makes us easily bored with the truest excitement. Sometimes we will do almost anything except the first works. But the Lord says, do the first works. Do the first things that you did when you first began to love and follow Jesus, know and follow Jesus. That's what we need to do. Love is the best fuel for us to burn on. Love for God. And then he gives a warning in this, in this assignment. He's a warning. Notice what it says there. Um, repent and do the first works. Look at the middle of verse 5 to the end. Or, or else. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. What is he saying there? Now, if you don't, God, the Lord's saying, look, I don't need a cold institutional church. Repent. I want a church that loves me or else I'm going to come quickly and I'm just going to, I'm going to cause this ministry to cease. <gasps> yeah, Jesus is Lord of all these churches, gospel-centered churches. You can say, I can put you there. I can remove you. I'll do away with you if you don't change this. It just shows what Jesus really wants. He wants us, he wants us to love him and then keep his commandments. There's a price to pay for letting your Christianity and your love for God grow cold. There's a price to pay for that. And then he, I like this, he gives, on the, again, one more thing regarding this assignment. He, he, again, he, he shows them a, there's a shared hate that they have. Pay attention to verse 6. So he complimented them. He criticized them and instructed them. But then he complimented them again. He says, but this thou hast. I see that you got this, verse 6, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, there's a good hate to have. There is a good hate to have. It's hate, hate, evil, love the good. The Bible says that. So the Lord's right to the church, says, you're doing good here. You're very busy. You've left your first love. Here's how to correct it. And by the way, you, you, you have this. You, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I also hate those. I hate that too. So we got something in common here. I'm not telling, in other words, he's saying, I'm not telling you to, to, not, um, to not care about false teaching and um, compromise Christianity. I'm not telling you to not care about that and only love me. You need to hate that too. You need to hate the evil. Who are the Nicolaitans? There's a kind of two opinions on this, and I lean toward the second one. It's kind of, it, it is a little hard to figure it out. I lean on the second one because it's based more on the definition of the word itself. The Nicolaitans... Uh, the word is for, well, let me tell you the one opinion. Um, some think the Nicolaitans were basically, to put it simply, kind of a, a worldly sect of Christians, of professing Christians. They're very worldly, and they basically say, yes, believe in Jesus, but we can still keep going to the temple. We can still live how we want, and the morals were, were down. It was just like, as long as you believe, and then just live how you want. Some think that was... It, it, they, that was the Nicolaitans. Now, there were people like that. I don't know if they were called Nicolaitans. There were people like that, though. Or I, it could be the second one, or it could be both together. I think it's the second one, though, where there was some kind of hierarchical type of group of Christians that believed in having this elite 
um, sort of this ruling class. These believed in bishops, a ruling of bishops, and this having this clergy laity distinction. Like there's clergy and there's laity. We use that terms, those terms nowadays in our society, but in reality, yes, I'm a pastor, and everybody else, we all have different spiritual gifts, but you know, I'm a brother. I'm a brother, and I'm going to stand before the Lord just like y'all. And I'm not the priest, and there's the people. It's not like that. There's no clergy laity distinction in the Bible. I will have to pause those aside and say, I really enjoy the clergy parking at the hospital. That's a blessing. You, you think I'm a clergy, so I'll park here. You know, that helps me. But, it, you know, and they do, they do that clergy parking. Like, yeah, I'm going to park right up there and get right into this hospital. That's a blessing. You know, they, we, we could talk to them about that and show them the Bible, too, but I don't know if it would help. But in reality, there's no clergy laity distinction. That is, the pastors are more superior and the denominational leaders, and then there's the papal. There's not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Are there pastors? Yes. Are there people? Yes. But we all have a certain gifts, and perhaps some um, uh, can be more consequential, uh, but there shouldn't be a superiority complex. I think that's what these type of people were. That's what I lean toward. And here's why. Nicolaitans, two words. Nikolai, Nicholas is the word where you get the word Nike, which means conquer, win. Nicolaitan is laos or laity people. Conquer the people. That's what the word means. Conquer the people. Be over the people. The Nicolaitans. And um, so that's where I lean to on that. Whatever it was, the Lord says, I hate them too. And, I, and, I, and it brings me to a thought of this. Sometimes as Christians, we can hate bad things, but not love Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of things in here. I know we're, you know, conservative type Christians. We're like, I hate that. I hate that. That's wrong. That's wrong. Well, there's a lot of things you can hate and never love Jesus. But I don't think the opposite can be true, that you can really love Jesus and not hate anything. If you really love Jesus, you will hate certain things, and you will love certain things that you ought to love too. Um, because... If I true love produces a healthy hatred. Look, because I love my wife, I hate certain things that could harm her. Because I love my kids, I hate certain influences or certain television programs and music that I absolutely hate because I know what it does. But I have to go back to the fact, why do I hate that? Well, it's because I love this and I don't want this person to be hurt. And so the Lord compliments them. Yes, I hate their deeds also, but he's calling them back to your love is what was the springboard of everything. And then last of all, here's the announcement. The announcement, verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. First part of the announcement. He's calling to all people who will listen. Anybody that has an ear, listen to what I just said to this church. Even if you think, well, we're not an Ephesians church, a church of Ephesus. He says, if you have an ear, still listen to it. He that hath an ear, what the, and he says, what the Spirit saith. It's not just man saying this. It's not just the opinion of somebody. It's listening to the Holy Spirit. And that's what we should have an ear for, by the way, as Christians, is have an ear for the voice of the Holy Spirit, which comes in written form, and it comes within you sometimes. That was pretty cool, Yannick. Yeah. What's that? 
Oh, yeah, thank you. That was some dramatic effect. I'm going to check Yannick's uh, playlist. <laughs> it's okay, Yannick. We love you. We love the Lord first. So what does the Bible say? The Lord gives an answer. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Um, by the way, Jesus is saying something. He attributes, attributes it to the Holy Spirit that's putting this to John and guiding John and writing it. And that's why we say this is inspired of God, Holy Spirit inspired. But that's not the rest of the announcement. Notice this. Hey, you want to listen to this? This is the very end here. He that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He that overcometh. Now, who isn't overcoming? Maybe somebody, oh, wait, wait. Am I, I'm in the church of Ephesus. I'm a Christian. Wait, am I an overcomer? What is overcoming? Well, let's go find 1 John chapter 5. Are you an overcomer? Because I want to eat of the tree of the paradise of God. I don't know what all that's about, but it sounds pretty cool. Eat of the tree of life. 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, 4 and 5, and 5 also. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. For whatsoever is born of God, have you had the second birth? Overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm an overcomer then. Just by becoming a Christian just by being born again, I've won. Being in the family, I've already overcome the world. Now, you may daily get kind of bogged down and knocked out by the world, but the long haul, we've beat the world. We've beat where the world's going, which is to hell. I've overcome the world. My daily faith in Christ helps me overcome the actual influence of the world. But in reality, we've overcome the world because by virtue of our faith in Christ, so the Lord's given a motivation to those. You can look forward to His return and to enjoying an aspect of a restored environment here with God one day. So this is the church of Ephesus. I want you to hear, or try to wind this down here. Vance Habner was a, I believe he was a Southern Baptist evangelist years ago. And he said this, <clears throat> He said a lot of our activity that is often mistaken for revival is just the church turning over but not waking up. Turning over is not getting up. And waking up is not getting up. The Word of God says we're to get up and go about our business for the King. A revival is the church falling in love with Jesus Christ all over again. We are in love with ourselves, in love with our particular crowd. In love with our fundamental, our fundamentalism, maybe, but not in love with Him. Revival is the church falling in love with Jesus Christ all over again. Isn't that true? I, um, I like celebrating, you know, things of the church. I like stepping back and seeing, oh, wait, this has been good years with our church. I like doing that. But we don't want to get too enamored with ourselves. Look at us. I've seen churches get like that. They get so, it's like their gospel is them and their history and their past and their accomplishments and they just love themselves. 
And, and it's not that we shouldn't recognize where we've been and what God has done and, and be happy about it, but we need to fall in love with Jesus Christ all over again all the time. No amount of doctrinal soundness or ministry activity can make up for a lack of love for Jesus. So my, I remember the, the illustration of the, the couple riding in the... How many of us guys ever had a truck with a bench seat? How many guys have... All right, yeah. How many of you had it when you are first married? Truck with a bench seat or vehicle with a bench seat? Do they make bench seats anymore? I had my El Camino and I liked the bench seat because I'm like, come on over here, girl. Scoot right in. There's a seatbelt there, you know. And so that was nice having the bench seat. Well, I read, you know, about the, the older couple riding in the truck with the bench seat. She's over there. She's like, how come we're not close anymore? You never hold my hand. You never sit by me. It's just like we're not close anymore. And he's like, I haven't moved. Come on over, girl, you know. And she scooted over. And she scooted over, and they began to talk again in their 50, 60-something. And that's what the Lord said. I haven't moved to the Ephesus church. They did. They, they moved and got enamored with other things. I'm not here to put down ladies, by the way, by saying that. But it's just that's how the Lord is here. That, um, I guess I want to say this to us is that You know, he, I don't know how to say it. It's just that, what, you know, our, even when we sing songs, that's a time to express love to the Lord. It is. When you, when you serve, that's another time to express love. But remember, that's what, he, that's what he likes. The Lord loves to be loved. And so that, in a way, you know, a good church is sometimes need to repent. And this was a good church that needed to repent because of the love they needed to revive. Let's bow for prayer.